Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your written word, where you communicate to us your thoughts and your processes. We pray that uh, as I come to speak now, that the words I speak uh, will be from you through the power of the Spirit and that we may leave this place not only knowing that we have met with you and with each other, but with something more to do. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, four weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 66 and at what true joy is. And that true joy involved praise, testimony and sacrifice. And that it was only by serving as instruments of God's uh, Uh, orchestra of joy, that true joy can be experienced. And then last week we looked at the momentous and joyous event which was followed by a great tragedy as Nadab and Abihu stumbled and incurred God's wrath on their sin. And tonight we look again in my favourite book of Leviticus and some of the words and phrases we commonly use come straight from this book. Words such as jubilee, Words such as uh, scapegoat, which we'll be looking at later on. And what husband hasn't given his wife a guilt offering at one time or another? I have. Flowers, chocolates. And Leviticus does have important things to tell us about sin, obedience and holiness. And perhaps most importantly, it tells about a God who is willing to dwell with his people. And so tonight we delve into chapter 16, which is the centre and the pinnacle of the book. So please keep your Bibles open to chapter 16. And chapter 16 describes the momentous day of atonement. And we know that God had chosen Israel to be his people and that they will be to be a shining beacon of light to the world around them. And as part of the covenant that God made with their leader Moses, God said that he would be their God and that they would be his people. What a contrast to the nations around them that worshipped multiple gods that were made of stone and wood, were inanimate and were thirsty for things such as human sacrifice. Not this God. And most of the activity takes place in the tabernacle. What did the tabernacle look like? It was like a big marquee and down the middle it was cut off by a curtain. There was the public side and the other side. Beyond the curtain we know as the Holy of Holies where the chief priest could only enter once a year. Perhaps that was Nadab's and Abihu's mistake after having a bit too much wine. (laughs) And so inside the Holy of Holies were these items which all screened how special this place was to God and also to Israel. There was the Ark of the Covenant, the object representing God's presence with his people. There was the mercy seat, which was a removable top of the Ark where the blood was sprinkled by the high priest. Then there was the golden censer, where the high priest used this to make a cloud of incense as he entered the Holy of Holies. Then there was the golden pot of manna, which symbolised how God had supplied the needs of his people during their wanderings. There was Aaron's rod, 
And then lastly, there were the stone tablets of the law as given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So what was the Day of Atonement all about? It was to be an annual event. The verses which Sue read to us so wonderfully give a summary, but you can read the details in the rest of the chapter. To atone means to clean, to make amends and to substitute. Chapter 16 starts by referring back to the incident we looked at last week with Abihu and Nadab. Through their death, the Lord states the fundamental principles for priests. Only they could mediate for the nation between him, before him and they had to be spiritually and ceremonially clean. Let's look very quickly at five aspects, otherwise Bruce will tell me off later, no doubt. There's the offerings, the blood, there's Aaron, there's the scapegoat and the people. So firstly, the offerings. The five offerings performed on the Day of Atonement in order to cleanse and re-consecrate the tabernacle all included the death of an animal and therefore involved blood. Two blood atonement sin offerings, one scapegoat sin offering and two burnt offerings. So that's the offerings. What about blood? Any haemophobes here? No, there's no blood. But why was the blood used to cleanse? Why not soap and water? Did God need blood in order to quench his bloodlust? By all means, no. Blood was used because it was to show that sin had a cost. And the cost was blood, because as Leviticus 17 verse 11 tells us, life is in the blood. The death substitute of an animal reflected a temporary covering or veneer, which is why it needed to be done over and over again each year. So that's blood, but what about Aaron? And during his normal daily duties, he represented God before the people and was dressed as a king. A king with great honour and clothes that would draw attention to his office of honour. And here on the one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, he represented the people before Almighty God. And he was dressed not as a king, but as a servant. Before the Lord Almighty, Aaron is stripped of honour and he approaches God as a servant. So to a certain extent, Aaron was a servant king. And before you go into the most holy place, the holy of holies, he had to create an obscuring cloud of incense to veil the glory of God so that he could enter and live unlike his sons. And no doubt the memory of his sons provided an extra incentive for him to follow God's rules meticulously. And we had the scapegoat, and all this talk of a scapegoat. There were two goats to be offered. One goat was sacrificed as a substitutionary sin offering for the people, and its blood taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Aaron laid his hands on the second goat's head, the one that was kept alive, and this symbolically cast the burden of sins of the nation onto that goat. It was then driven out into the wilderness, far away from the camp, and was never to return. I can imagine the looks on their faces if it decided to come back. And lastly, what about the people? What were they to do? Just sit there and look bored while all this took place? 
Well, they were not to be passive, but rather they were to remember this day as an addition to their annual calendar by uh, humbling their souls, as one version puts verse 31. This involved not doing routine things such as working and feasting. They were to ponder upon the awesomeness of their God who lived amongst them and to reflect the cost of their own sin. They were also trusting that the chief priest was being fully obedient to the regulations. So atonement was done. On this day of atonement, the one day of the year, atonement took place between God and his cherished people. God's holy dwelling place and things associated with it were cleansed by blood. The sins and disobedience of the nation of Israel over the previous year had left impurities as stipulated in verse 16. The cleansing blood was to symbolise the great cost of sin. If the Day of Atonement did not proceed as regulated, or perhaps they forgot one year, God could no longer be present with his people due to the stains of sin and the uncleanness of his tabernacle or dwelling place. Holiness is what separates God from all his creation. For God alone is holy, perfect and full of glory. Exodus 15.2 says, Who is like you, O God, glorious in holiness? Or Isaiah chapter 60, verse 25, To whom will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, says the Holy One. But if God was holy, how was his nation to act holy? That's what we'll be looking at now as Chris Cook comes to read to us. Uh, Page 120, Leviticus uh, 18, uh, verse 1 to, to 5, and then also Leviticus 19, uh, 9 to 18. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And the second one. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of the fields or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud your neighbour or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favouritism to the great. But judge your neighbour fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbour's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. 
rebuke your, rebuke your neighbour frankly, so that you will share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Amen. In the first part we looked at the ceremonial cleaning of God's dwelling place, the tabernacle. And now Leviticus moves to the matter of personal and communal and national holiness and moral impurity. Or moral purity, rather. And repeatedly in this book, God has frequently said, Be holy, for I am holy. And the ancient nation of Israel was to be an obedient example to the whole world. A unique concept or paradigm, if you like. God was present with them and they were to be his light in a dark world. The people of Israel were to live a life that reflected the holiness of Almighty God. This God desired obedience over sacrifice. Holiness was to be a moral attribute of ancient Israel, much the same as it was for the holy God who dwelt amongst them. In chapter 18 we see at least three characteristics of this relationship. Firstly, there is the call for them to be loyal to God. God's laws were not to be obeyed as slaves, but to be obeyed joyfully and with uh, effervescent and lively vigour. God is speaking to those he is in an intimate and dynamic relationship with, and he wants them to be observably loyal to him, holy. And secondly, there's the call to be different. Of course, some of us are more different than others, and different from the surrounding countries and cultures. Ancient Israel was to have a a national distinctiveness that uh, truly was to have separated them from the surrounding cultures, such as Egypt. Ancient Israel was to live a life so radically different that the people around them would notice that they were different. They were to be separate from the worlds around them in lifestyle and worship. Their God was a personal God who dwelt with them. God's presence with them was to affect every aspect of life on both a national and individual level. And thirdly, their whole life was to be worship. Worship wasn't to be just for the Sabbath and the sacrifice rituals, for the feasts and the ceremonies. It was to be their lifestyle. God's regulations affected such uh, ordinary things as relationships, diet, clothing, social justice, social welfare, uh, environment and work. Their whole lifestyle was to be an, an act of worship and not just on the Sabbath. Who knows best what humans need? Humans or the God who created them? By being obedient, they would have life to the full, a life of blessing, of abundance and peace. Let's look at an example, that chapter 19, that Chris read out. It starts off with taking care of the poor and the alien and the daily necessity to eat. That was how God was going to provide for the poor and the alien, through the farmer not harvesting everything. I wonder if many farmers do that these days. And to leave some food unharvested was to be a symbolic act of worship, a thanksgiving and a visible sign of trusting in God to supply people's needs. It was holiness in action, a generous holiness, if you like. 
Then there's good neighbours. Everybody likes good neighbours. And don't talk about the Australian soap. Because that's not good neighbours. And this section is summarised in Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbour as yourself. So, for an ancient Israelite, to love his neighbour would mean not stealing, not lying, not being deceptive, not blaspheming, not cursing, not being uh, unjust, not slanderous. He was uh, not to be filled with hatred or endangering the lives of others. A good neighbour would be a person of integrity. They wouldn't be seeking to exploit others in any way. A good neighbour would administer justice and be observably filled with love. Does that remind you of something that someone said in the New Testament? So, what is the best way for us in the 21st century to read these ancient laws of Leviticus? Is it just to simply ignore them or are we to slavishly follow them? Perhaps the best way is to simply let Scripture interpret Scripture and see what the New Testament says about the Levitical laws. Take, for instance, the food laws. Who here likes bacon sandwiches? Because I know I do. And we know in the New Testament that all food is now permissible. Whereas under the Old Testament, certain foods were not permitted to be eaten. In the New Testament, for example, the Apostle Peter had a dream in which all food was declared clean. And it's also wise not to see them as merely a list of not do statements, but also as do statements. Rather, we should see them as a love letter from a God who wants to save his people from distress and anxiety in order to give them a life of peace, unity, health and a joyful life in all its holiness. All these laws were to lead ancient Israel to be a holy nation. Holiness was about being set apart for a purpose and making wise, conscious decisions about what was right or wrong. It involved being obedient to God and keeping his decrees and regulations. Being wholly involved having a lifestyle which is contrary to the cultures surrounding them. To be holy was a lifestyle choice of worship to reflect their holy God who lived amongst them. Not like the surrounding nations whose gods were made of stone and wood and were inanimate. Not dynamic like their God. They were called to be loyal, called to be distinct and called to worship. So what's all that got to do with us? Where does the Day of Atonement and these laws fit into the life of a Christian now in the 21st century? We'll take a look in a little while. I wonder what the, the biggest fence, wall or barrier is that you've ever seen. Perhaps one of the biggest walls in the world is the Great Wall of China. I visited it, not all 4,000 miles I hasten to add, but I have flown over it. And it's huge. At certain parts it's 30 foot thick, or as Jim would say, 30 feet thick. It's huge. And it was originally built to keep out invaders. For that is what walls and barriers do. Keep people out. However big the Great Wall of China is, 
there is one barrier that is even bigger. Just as it was for ancient Israel, it is for us today. The biggest barrier to exist is the one that separates God from his creation. This barrier is holiness. For God is a holy God and people are inherently not. The prophet Ezekiel gives a vivid, by the way, Ezekiel is my favourite prophet. I don't know what he was on, but some of those dreams. And here he gives a, a vivid picture of the holiness of God. And he describes it as a fire, a bright light, radiance full of glory and majesty. If that is what holiness is, I wonder what you think sin is. Sin is a heavy burden. Sin is also like a toxic virus of the soul and it affects every person. It's more deadly than Ebola, HIV and Spanish flu put together. And sin inevitably leads to death and sin is anti-God. Sin is disobedience of God. Sin is also not doing what is right. With God there is no big or small sin. Sin size is a human construct. However, um, some sins do cause God to grieve more than others. And if only people uh, declared holy can enter God's presence, how are we made holy? How can we, as mortal, unholy, sinful people, enter into the presence of God and live? What does atonement, if anything, mean for us in the 21st century? The best commentary on Leviticus chapter 16 that you can find is found in the book of Hebrews and it's chapters 9 and 10. You can do that as your homework this week if you like. But if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2 and I will read verses 14 to 18 for you. Talking about Jesus. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus Christ is our scapegoat, and takes the immense burden of our sins on himself. When from the cross he cried, Father, why have you forsaken me? That was when he was separated from his father. That was when he was in the desert like that goat. As for Aaron, Aaron was a type of servant king, but Jesus was the ultimate servant king. Aaron, as chief priest, offered sacrifices for the cleansing of sin, but Jesus Christ himself was both the sacrifice and the chief priest. Jesus Christ became sin. And we see the annually repeated day of atonement becoming the unique day of Calvary. 
as Jesus' death is an atoning and substitutionary sacrifice which makes amends to God for the sins of the world. Jesus alone gives life and offers life to the full, a life born from grace and not from law. I'm sure Jim was expecting me to, to uh, go into whether the, I think the sacrifice was an expiation or a propitiation. Oh, you were. <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> At the time of Jesus' death, the curtain in the Holy of Holies in the temple was torn from top to bottom. This was to symbolise that access to God was now open. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, as God never wanted sacrifices in the first place. God desired obedience over sacrifice all the time. The sacrifices of Leviticus were only in place because the ancient Israelites sinned. They were disobedient towards God and his desires. God wanted obedience, and obedience, as we know, goes on to give praise to Almighty God and gives testimony to his goodness. Full joy. Let's now quickly compare the Levitical sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifices before Bruce gives me a kick. The Levitical sacrifices, they were performed repeatedly by earthly priests who stood their work was unending as they uh, laboured on earth and their sacrifices could never take away sin. Then there was Jesus' sacrifice. He offered one sacrifice. Jesus now sits at God's right hand in power and glory with his earthly work now complete. His sacrifice achieved its goal of fulfilment and made his followers holy. At the cross of Jesus Christ on Calvary, the old covenant was fulfilled and the new covenant ushered in. This new covenant assures those who follow Jesus Christ that they have forgiveness, they have peace, they're reconciled to God, they're declared right and just before God, they're cleansed from sin, they're free from the slavery to sin, they're free from the power of the devil, they're given the spirit to dwell inside them, and they're granted direct access to God the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And with his own blood, rather than that of an animal, Jesus Christ became the only atoning sacrifice that is perfectly acceptable to God. And it's only by his blood that was shed on Calvary that makes people holy. While the Levitical sacrifices were needed to be done over and over and over again, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a once and for all ultimate sacrifice never to be repeated. And because of Jesus Christ's sacrificial death and the subsequent resurrection, we have access to God and we have been declared holy and innocent, but only if we've made a conscious decision to follow him and him alone. Perfect holiness has been revealed in Jesus Christ and him alone. And if you're a Christian here, you have been declared holy because you now wear Jesus Christ's robe of righteousness. It was given to you as a gift of grace. That is because of what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. Jesus Christ has broken down the barrier of holiness between God and humanity once and for all by his sacrificial death. <laughs> 
That's why we celebrate Jesus' death around the communion table, as we did this morning. And that's why the bread and the wine can only be symbols of his flesh and his blood. If the bread and the wine did actually turn into his flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, as some churches proclaim, then surely we would be sacrificing Jesus all over again. And if you're a Christian, you are declared holy, and therefore you and I are to live a holy life, a life worthy of Jesus Christ. And as a Christian, we have the the Holy Spirit living within us, changing and transforming us into the very image of the Holy One. Your transformation into that image of Jesus Christ is the greatest evidence, not only of the work of the Spirit, but also of you being a Christian, living an obedient life to God. As a Christian, you are no longer an enemy of God, but a friend of God and belong to God. He will take care of you. As Christians, we are to live a life of obedience to God, casting off all that will hinder and seeks to stop us, resisting temptation, telling old hairy legs to go get and wax and get lost. And if we fall into disobedience, we can confess our sin to the Father through the name of the Son in the power of the Spirit. God is Trinity. And get right back up again, knowing we are forgiven. Totally amazing grace. Nothing we can do. And as Christians, we're called to be joyfully obedient to the Lord, serving Him in every aspect of life. And in doing so, our whole lives will be acceptable worship to God and not just on a a Sunday meeting like this or a midweek meeting. Our worship, like the ancient Israelites, is to be a lifestyle of conscious decisions, reflecting our devotion to a God with whom we are to be in a dynamic and intimate relationship with and who lives within you. How often do we take that for granted when we forget who we are? That the Holy Spirit, one part of the Trinity, is within each of us. And as instruments in God's orchestra of joy, we are to be loyal to Him, the joy giver. We are to obey with that joyful, effervescent, lively vigour and reflect a living God to a society out there which is in darkness and doesn't even know that it's in darkness. They will know we are Christians by the way we act. Actions of obedience to a God signified by the love we have for each other and for them. Love in action by supplying people's needs both on an individual and community basis. We are called to follow God and not to succumb to the temptations which seek to to mar and ruin our relationship with the God who lives inside us. Go into this week to obey and serve the Lord with faithful obedience and joy. Thank you.